And Lord, for the study tonight, we pray that you bless our time of study in Isaiah. Lord, that you would allow us to to spend this time in your word in a productive way. That you might that you might speak through your word, and that you might accomplish things through your word tonight, we pray. Amen. Okay, right, we're in Isaiah 36. Now, most of you, um, in your Bibles, as you look at your Bibles, you will see, for the bulk of the book of Isaiah, it is typeset a certain way. It is typeset in a way that you might be familiar with from Psalms and Proverbs. It is typeset poetically. And um, when we come to chapter 36, it reverts to regular sort of, it's typeset the word I want, formatting, you know, um, the way it, it, it's looked. Because Isaiah, as well as being a predominantly a book of prophecy, is predominantly a book of poetry. But now we're coming to a few chapters of prose as we, uh, as we end uh, this first section of Isaiah coming up to chapter 40. So we have here a historical interlude, as some people call it, um, where, where following all of his prophecy, the last bit of which is dealing with the temptation that Israel has to basically trust in Egypt rather than to trust in, in Yahweh. And uh, that has led into the final chapters of chap, uh, coming up to chapter 35, talking about the eschatological outworkings of them trusting in God. And so here in chapter 36, we deal with the historical background to the whole issue of this trusting in Egypt. So if you wanted to go away, I did consider doing this today, but there is, they are such long passages, and uh, I feel that it might detract a little bit from Isaiah. But in 2 Kings 18, 2 Kings 18, if you're writing it down, um, chapter 18 there, we deal with Hezekiah's reign, who begins. And Hezekiah was the son of Ahaz, who we, um, we saw in chapter 7, but we'll come back to him in a moment. And his reign, and then specifically in the second half of chapter 18, the ta- attack on Hezekiah by Sennacherib, who is the king of Assyria. And that whole story, as it were, goes right the way through to the end of 2 Kings chapter 20. You will find a parallel account also in 2 Chronicles, in 2 Chronicles 32. So we'll be referencing those, those passages occasionally, um, but this is a more of a historical section. So tonight's message is going to be difficult. And the reason is, is because here we are, and we kick off in verse 1, and it says, In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah, and he took them. And now suddenly we're in a historical setting where you don't know anything about what's going on. You probably don't know, you know, Hezekiah is the son of Ahaz, Sennacherib, he's king of Assyria, okay. But there's a whole background to it that you may not be familiar with. I certainly wasn't before I prepared. And 
So there's a whole bunch of stuff that we need to go through by way of introduction, which means that we're going to be limited how much we can cover, and um, we'll, we'll see how we go. So I will try and as quickly as is possible give you a brief history lesson okay, on the background. And this will be helpful in that it will help you understand what's going on. But again, if you want to get a fuller picture, you can read through 2 Kings 18 through 20, and you can read through 2 Chronicles 32. But this section, we're going to see a lot of the prophecies of the first part of Isaiah are fulfilled here, and there's going to be other portions that are referenced here. So, um, the last thing to say by way of introduction is that what we also have in these chapters is the transition from Assyrian rule to Babylonian rule. So much of Isaiah, we're talking about the Babylonians and they're going to come. And I remember saying to you in these early chapters, they're no big deal right now. What's the, what's the attention to, the, to Babylon? Babylon's not a big threat. And then when we come to the second half of Isaiah, chapter 40 and following, then what we have is we have the Babylonians being the main threat. We have, we have talk about the Babylonian captivity. Um, so this is the, the transition, as it were, from the Assyrians to the Babylonians. So chapter 36 and 37 is Hezekiah and the Assyrians. Then in chapter 38, we have Hezekiah's sickness. And we'll deal with that when we come to it. But then in chapter 39, we have our segue into Hezekiah and the Babylonians. So that's what is all coming. Okay, so here's the background. Since chapter 7 of Isaiah, you remember Ahaz? We'll turn there a little bit later on. There's Ahaz, and Ahaz is in a situation. Here is the situation, okay? The situation is, is that the northern kingdom of Israel which is now divided from the southern kingdom, Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel and, uh, and Syria are forming an alliance to try and, as, the, as smaller nations, defend themselves against the superpower, as it were, of Assyria. But the two of them enough is going to be insufficient. So they ask Judah, the southern kingdom, to join them in their alliance to protect them from this big superpower of Assyria over to the, to the north-east. Uh, and then, um, so Israel and Syria, not Assyria, Israel and Syria, they come, come together as, a, as a, an alliance, and they are, have approached Ahaz and the king of Judah and said, will you join in our alliance, and then together we can stand against the Assyrians. Ahaz, a wicked king in Israel's history, he, as we saw in chapter 7 and following, he decides that rather than, than join up with these smaller nations against the big nation, that he's going to join up with the big nation against the smaller nations. He's going to basically back the bully. It will be the equivalent of if you're at school and a couple of your, 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 the kids in your class, or maybe your friends, are being bullied by the big bullies, that you decide to go and become friends with the bullies so you don't get bullied. That kind of deal. That's what's going on. So, that's what Ahaz did. And in chapter 7, in chapter 7, we could turn there briefly as well. Oh, you don't need to, I can just read to you. Um, in chapter 7, um, Yahweh says to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shea Yashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, 
Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smouldering stumps of firebrands. At the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up to Judah against it and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. And thus says Yahweh, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. And, uh, and then he continues on. So in other words, Judah, uh, Judah is basically about to be attacked, is being attacked by Syria and Israel so that they can take out Ahaz, install their own king, so that they then can have Judah on their side to form an alliance against the superpower. That's the plan. And basically, since that day, as we know as we've gone through Isaiah, that was initially successful in that the Assyrians helped deal with, the, uh, with Israel and Syria, but ultimately it was counterproductive because now Assyria has placed Judah under their bonds. They have um, be- had become subservient now to, As- to Assyria. And Hezekiah, following the death of Ahaz, has become king, and he became king in 715 BC. Okay? Remember when we're dealing with BC, the further we go, the smaller the numbers become. Just in case you get confused, sometimes people do. Okay, so in 715 BC, Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, becomes king, and he finds himself king of Judah at a time when Judah is subservient to Assyria because his father rejected the counsel of Isaiah and trusted in Assyria rather than trusting in God. (laughs) So, a couple of years into his reign... There is the, um, the city of Ashdod, which is a Philistine city. Those of you who were here for the uh, oracle against the Philistines, we saw oracles against their various cities. The, the, the Philistia wasn't really a country per se. It was an alliance between great cities. So it wasn't one united nation, it was a coming together of various cities. And one of those cities is Ashdod. And Ashdod, a couple of years after Hezekiah became king, they rebelled against the Assyrians. And the king of Assyria, who at that time was called Sargon II, Sargon comes down and he smashes that rebellion. Then another year later, Ashdod rebels again. There is a leader... Uh, Yamani, who comes up and he deposes the king that Sargon put in place. And this time he rebels again, but this time he rebels with the backing of the Egyptians. The Egyptian power is building down in the south. And now they're trying to gather Egyptian support because the Egyptians are obviously concerned about the superpower of Assyria as well. And so... um, And so they now have Egyptian backing. But even with that Egyptian backing, Sargon comes back down again from Assyria and he he starts to invade. But now Moab and Edom also join the revolt, but Sargon wins. He takes the cities back. He um, 
he conquers it and uh, Yamani who's the leader, he rushes off and he flees to a Greek island. Now, all of that is relevant because in Isaiah 20, some of you were here for Isaiah 20, in Isaiah 20, this was prophesied and it was spoken of, or or we were told about it, rather. Um, Isaiah 20 says, In the year that the commander-in-chief who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it, At that time, Yahweh spoke by Isaiah, son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so walking naked and barefoot. If you recall Isaiah 20, Isaiah had to walk around naked. That may not mean literally naked. That may just mean essentially in his undies, in his underwear. Um... But he had to walk around for three years as a sign against Egypt and against Cush. And so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives. And we're going to see the fulfillment of that in a moment. So basically, that happens and uh, and Isaiah 20 is, is fulfilled in that regard. Now, what happens now with Hezekiah... This is about nine years later now. This is 703 BC. There is within Israel, or sorry, within Judah, there is a pro-Egyptian group and a pro-Assyrian group. The pro-Egyptian group says, we need to rise up against Assyria. You know, like Ashdod's tried it twice, but they weren't successful. They got the Egyptians to help them and they weren't successful. They had Moab and Edom to help them they weren't successful. But if we come along as well, because of our crucial location, if we come as well, we can do this. And uh, Sargon has now died. And so there is an opportunity. Um, but equally within Judah, there is a pro-Assyrian camp. There's a pro-Assyrian camp. And the pro-Assyrian camp says, basically, we don't want to be fighting. We don't want to be rebelling and getting people killed and going to battle. And Isaiah, if you remember going back to Isaiah 28, Isaiah was very much in the pro-Assyrian camp. And the reason is because Isaiah had warned Ahaz, if you don't trust in Yahweh and you trust in Assyria, that's going to be a problem. And the Assyrian yoke, the, 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 them having to submit to Assyria, them being subservient to Assyria, though they're still a nation, they're under their authority, that happened as judgment against them. And they need to accept God's judgment and not resist it. So Isaiah, as we saw in chapter 28 and following, that Isaiah is opposed to any rebellion against Assyria because Assyria is God's servant. Assyria has been used by God to judge Judah. So when Sargon dies, this mighty Sargon who's, who's quashed the rebellion twice already, Hezekiah decides that he is going to make a decision and he makes the same awful mistake that his father made. And that's what we've seen a lot of going on in Isaiah 28, Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 30. Them trusting in Egypt. And that's exactly what Hezekiah did. And you can uh, see that in uh, 2 Kings 18, verses 7 and 8. We'll see this, that Hezekiah not only joins the revolt, getting Egyptian support, but he also leads it. And Edom and Moab join in again. Um, But there um, there is some refusal. 
Um, in 2 Kings chapter 18 and verse 8, the Philistine city of Gaza refuses to join it. They've obviously been fed up of seeing the Assyrians come in and conquer Ashdod again and again. And so Hezekiah attacks Gaza, takes the city, and leaves Judeans to settle there. In other words, we're going to have an alliance, just like we planned, and you're not going to get in the way. Essentially, he's doing what Israel and Syria did against his father. You will join our alliance, whether you like it or not. Um, And so there is another king of another um, Philistine city called Pardi, who's king of Ekron, and he refuses to join. And so he is then dethroned, not by Hezekiah, but he's dethroned by his own citizens who were wanting to join the rebellion. And Hezekiah puts him in prison. Now, what's fascinating as we go through all of this detail, by the way, is that there are three sources of all this information. There's the biblical account, there's the Egyptian account, and there's the Assyrian account. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But the, I, mean, I got to read some of the Assyrian accounts in preparation, and it is absolutely fascinating. So Hezekiah, because he's going to battle against the Assyrians, he prepares for a siege. In a worst-case scenario, we need to be ready. Have any of you heard of from in the news in recent years, or in, you know, just in general um, reading, have you ever heard of Hezekiah's Tunnel in Jerusalem? A few years ago, they discovered Hezekiah's Tunnel. And it was funny because it's one of those things that we know about from Scripture. In 2 Kings 20, verse 20, 2 Chronicles 32 and verse 30, we, we read that Hezekiah prepared for this siege by creating an underwater tunnel going from the spring of Gihon to the pool of Siloam. In other words, he created a tunnel that allowed water to come through to the pool of Siloam, which you probably are familiar with from from the Gospels in Jerusalem. And that meant that they were self-sufficient in their water. And they were then able to block off the outside water supply so that nothing could be done to their water supply because it's now coming from underground tunnels. It's coming from springs and there's nothing that can be done to prevent them having water. So now if they're surrounded, they're good. Once the whole of the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD and following, no one knew about these tunnels and where they were. And it's literally only in recent years that they found the tunnels of Hezekiah where the water came in. So, um, but anyways, just I thought somebody, I know Jenny's heard of it, some of you may have heard of it. Um, but they also fortified the walls of the city as well. And they got ready for the, for the siege. So this all began in 703 after the death of Sargon. And now in 701 BC, so another couple of years later, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, he was made king in 715, it's now 701. So that's what chapter 36 and verse 1 says, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, that's 701, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. There were a total, I believe, let me just double check, of a 46, I think it was 46 cities that were fortified. That means there were 46 cities that rather than just being gatherings of people, had walls around them to protect them from the enemy. 46 cities that were there in, Israel, in, in Judah, 
that when Sennacherib finally attacks, he comes down, he makes his way down, and he takes the 46 cities. It was a bit of a clear victory. When he comes down, he comes down the coast. I should have a map here. We haven't really got the facility to do this. But if you've got the the coast here, he comes down the coast. So from the top, he goes along and then down along the side to where the Philistine cities are. And as he comes down the coast, he is victorious. And at Mount Carmel, he has the surrender of Edom, Moab, Ammon, and Hezekiah's alliance completely falls apart. He goes down to Ekron. If you remember Ekron, where I mentioned Ekron, Pardi was the king of Ekron who was put into imprisonment. They come down to Ekron and the leaders there who had overthrown Pardi, they are all impaled. And it is at Ekron that we have um, that we have the defeat of the Egyptians. I think I may have said it was a Philistine city earlier on. Actually, Ekron is, um, is where the Egyptians were. The Egyptians are defeated at Ekron. And in defeating, having gone down the coast to below Jerusalem, into Egypt, by having victory at Ekron, they've now prevented any aid or assistance, military or otherwise, coming anywhere from the west. And to some degree from the south. And so when they went down to battle in Ekron, where they have this victory, the Assyrian army, majority of them go there, but a portion of the army goes out towards Jerusalem. And that, by cutting across country above Jerusalem, that now prevents any assistance coming from the north. In other words, Jerusalem is pretty much surrounded. And we read about this in Isaiah 10. In Isaiah 10. Um, 28 to 32 Um, and it talks about um, that particular tragedy in advance and um, we we dealt with that at the time but that's now coming to fruition so the whole section of the end of um, the, the story of Ahaz ends with the prophecy concerning Assyrian conquering and now that is happening and uh, just and I, I want you to understand this when we come to Isaiah 36 we come to Isaiah 36 these fortified cities have been taken Sennacherib has been victorious everywhere the Egyptians have been conquered the um, the Edomites the Moabites the Ammonites The Philistines, they've all been conquered. Assyria has proven itself to be mighty. And there's only one last domino left to fall. Jerusalem. That's it. Everything else is gone. Now, if this sounds familiar, it's because Hezekiah is now in exactly the same situation as his father was in. When we came to Ahaz, the city, the fortified cities have fallen, and Jerusalem was surrounded by Israel and Syria. Now, because Ahaz trusted in Assyria, Hezekiah finds himself in exactly the same situation. You are now in the same situation as your father. He got it wrong. What are you going to do? That's the situation that we find ourselves in on this occasion. And Hezekiah has essentially taken the same view as his father. He's trusted in the Egyptians, just as his father trusted in the Assyrians. 
And now he is lost. He is lost because the Egyptians have been defeated and um, he is now going to have to bear the consequences. And it looks like this is what is going to happen. It looks like Jerusalem is going to have to fall as well. And what happens is Hezekiah sees the situation and um, when Sennacherib is at a place called Lachish, you'll see that in verse 2, the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the washer's field. Does that sound familiar? Because I just read that earlier in Isaiah 7. In other words, Hezekiah is standing at this place in Jerusalem where he can see out and about, which is exactly where his father stood. He looks out, he looks out there and his father made an agreement with the Assyrians and now he is there and he has the Assyrians coming to him. It's not Sennacherib. Sennacherib has sent some people. He sent um, the Rabshakeh, which is not a name, it's a title, and it's the title of a cupbearer, the chief cupbearer. And he comes with a great army, presumably for protection, but also, I believe, to some degree, for intimidation. And he comes down to the same location where Ahaz rejected, um, rejected the advice of Isaiah and the command of God. Then verse 3, there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, um, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and Joha the son of Asaph, the recorder. And so essentially what you've got is you've got two delegations meeting. You've got the Sennacherib sent his delegation to Jerusalem, and you've got um, Hezekiah sending his delegation, the head of the household, and uh, the scribe and the recorder to take notes um, to meet. And they all meet together in verse 3. And what has happened here, uh, what has happened here is that Hezekiah is essentially surrendering. So look at verse 4. The Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. So look at verses 4 through 6. The message from the king of Assyria, the great king. Notice Hezekiah is not called king. There's Pharaoh, he's king of Egypt. There's the great king, Sennacherib, but there's just Hezekiah. And they say to him, you thought you could trust in Egypt. You thought that you could trust in Egypt, but they are simply a broken reed of a staff and they will pierce you. In other words, you've been harmed by trusting in Egypt. Look at the repetition of trust here. This is such a crucial thing. You're trusting in Egypt such is Pharaoh to those who trust in him. And so he points out the futility of the rebellion. There is this talk of war, but there's no power behind it. Now it gets a bit more serious in verse 7. But if you say to me, we trust in Yahweh our God, 
Is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall come worship before this altar? In other words, you think that Yahweh is going to be the one to help you. Now, how does he know the name? This is the name of their God. They've trusted in their God. How does he know of Yahweh? He's already defeated Yahweh. He's defeated Yahweh because he's conquered Israel. Assyria has conquered the northern kingdom of Israel long, long ago. And that they were under their might long before Judah. Judah's now come under their might as well. Now there's a new king. But all of this time, Israel has been under the might of Assyria. And they conquered Judah, uh, Israel. They've now conquered Judah and they... Judah's subservient, so they know that this Yahweh God is a God who has been conquered, and they have no fear of him at all. And specifically, they say to Hezekiah, look again in verse 7, is it not he whose high places and altars you've removed? Now this just shows his ignorance of the situation uh, with regards to Israel. Israel did have high places. High places were places where Yahweh was worshipped. That's true. So far, so good. But high places were not good places. Why? Because Yahweh said, you will come and make your sacrifice where? At the temple, in Jerusalem. That's where you come and make your sacrifice. And that's a long way away. We don't want to go to the temple. So what do they do? They set up high places. They set up high places where they could go and they could worship and they could give their sacrifice. <coughs> so they were basically worshipping the right God, but they were worshipping the wrong way. Kind of like a, a lot of the more extreme charismatic churches of our day, the Bethel and, and all of those kind of guys. And, and maybe even you'd include some of the prosperity gospel people in that as well. For many of these people, they genuinely save these people and they genuinely, they genuinely want to worship Jesus, but they're just doing it the completely the wrong way. They're disobeying God in their very act of worship. So we see lots of parallels to that today. So Hezekiah taking down the high places is actually a good thing. But to Sennacherib, who doesn't understand Yahweh, it seems as if Hezekiah is rebelling against Yahweh because he's taking down places of worship. And so, uh, so Hezekiah is, is offered a wager by Sennacherib. Come now, verse 8, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. What he's basically saying here is this. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you 2,000 free horses, and then you can use those horses to come to battle against us. Because I know you haven't got enough horses But you know what? Oh yeah, you probably don't even have enough men to sit on the horses. In other words, we have such great military might that you cannot beat us. It would be the modern equivalent of saying, you don't have enough fighter planes? I'll give you fighter planes. You can have fighter planes. We feel completely safe because you don't have enough pilots. That's what's going on. And so that's the wager, a mocking wager, that is made to, to Hezekiah. Verse 9, how then 
How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? In other words, not only are you inferior, but Egypt is inferior as well. Egypt's been crushed. You trusted in them. You have got nothing. And then verse 10 is where he crosses the line. In fact, really, he crossed the line after verse 6. Up to verse 6, you know, you're weak, you're failed, you're nothing. He's absolutely right. He's, he's essentially, up to verse 5, he's simply echoing what Isaiah has said. You, you're, it's futile trying to take down Assyria. Isaiah said exactly the same thing in chapter 28, chapter 29. It's futile. Absolutely pointless. Because God has put Assyria in that position over you. But verse 7, when he says Yahweh is no help... Was a, was a bad thing. And verse 10, he completely crossed the line. He says in verse 10, Moreover, it is without Yahweh, is, sorry, is it without Yahweh that I have come up against this land to destroy it? In other words, he's saying, Hey, you, you know who I am, right? I'm the guy that's just taken 46 fortified cities in your land. I've taken Israel, I've taken, I've taken the Philistines, I've taken Edom, Moab, Ammon, I've taken Egypt. That, that's who I am right now. And did I have Yahweh? Did I march in the name of Yahweh? Was Yahweh my God who I was trusting in? No, no, no. And so he says at the end of verse 10, Yahweh said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. And so what we see here is the fulfillment, and this is going back a bit now, to Isaiah 10. Where in Isaiah 10, as the judgment comes, Assyria is judged. Um, Israel is judged through Assyria, Isaiah 10 verses 5 and following, up to verse 11, and then verse 12 and following, Assyria goes beyond the authority that God has given. And coming against Jerusalem is really the extent of what they're allowed to do. Now, what we're not told here, and we're told in other historical documents, or um, partly elsewhere in the Bible, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, partly in Egyptian and Assyrian texts, but what was, what was offered at this point is this, that... Hezekiah is told, you must release Pardi, king of Ekron, who, remember, he'd imprisoned. Yes, remember that? We know he'd imprisoned him because we're told in the Bible. We know that he released him because we're told that in the Assyrian annals. In the, in the writings of the Assyrians, we're told that Pardi was released. So basically, Hezekiah does as he's told. And he's also told to pay heavy tribute. That we have in the Bible. 2 Kings 18 verses 13 through 16. He has to basically cough up. He has to pay a whole bunch of money to Sennacherib to have assurance of peace. But then Sennacherib breaks his word. And he demands the surrender of Jerusalem and the deportation of all the people from Jerusalem. This is where Sennacherib's crossed the line. He's crossed the line because God gave him permission to go to this land. God wanted Assyria to bring judgment upon Judah, but you don't get to take Jerusalem. 
And a peace deal was made with Hezekiah, and then that peace deal has now been broken. And so that then leaves us in this situation. Now, this whole story then develops a whole bunch more. Then Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, um, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, come out to me, then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water from his own cistern. Until I come and take you away to a a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, Yahweh will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. What a message. And this is the, the Rab Shaka. Remember, he is the one who has come, the cupbearer, and he is making this announcement to them. <coughs> Pardon me. And he's making, oh, sorry. I'm, I, I read from verse 13. I skipped verses 11 and 12. Please pardon me. Sorry. I'm just going to jump back to verses 11 and 12. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah, within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall, who are doomed with you to eat their own dung, and drink their own urine. That's a very polite way of saying something which could be paraphrased a little bit more strongly. And I can probably assure you that when that was delivered, that would have been said a lot more graphically, a lot, a lot less smoothly, with less, less um, medically approved terminology, shall we say. And, and so what is happening here is this, that the, um, the Jewish delegation are basically saying... Please speak to us in Aramaic. So in other words, here's the proposal that is being made. When you make this proposal, do it in Aramaic, because we, the educated ones, the ones of the royal house, we understand Aramaic. Now we, today, we often think of Aramaic as being a language that is a Jewish language that the Jews spoke, that Jesus would speak in Aramaic, right? But that only comes about following the Babylonian captivity. That comes about because of the captivity. It comes about at the time of Daniel. So at this stage, the Jewish people, generally speaking, didn't understand Aramaic, but these ambassadors, as it were, did. And he basically they're saying, we don't, we don't want you to speak in a language that the people who are not the officials can hear. In other words, they want the... Um, <coughs> They want 
the message to be delivered to them so that they can take it straight to the king without all the people in the city finding out what the message is. And it's then, sorry, and that's why I jumped ahead rather, in verse 13, that this, this ambassador, the cupbearer, the Rabshaka, he stands out and calls out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. So he calls out in Hebrew specifically <coughs> so the people can understand. It's not a case of we're gonna, we'll give the message to Hezekiah and he may or may not give it to his people. We will deliver the message to the people. And as I read to you, the message to the people is very, very strong. The message, broadly speaking, is this. There is a danger here that Hezekiah, a double-minded man if ever there was one, that Hezekiah, who's taken down the high places, Hezekiah, who does have a faith of some degree, who is not as bad as his father was, there is a danger that Hezekiah might say to these people, let's trust in Yahweh. Let's trust in Yahweh. Why? Because the city of Jerusalem is so precious to them. Sennacherib wants to take the city to prevent there being further rebellion. Sennacherib wants to overthrow the rulership. He wants to overthrow the house of David, just like they tried to do previously, or they, the, the, uh, the nation of Israel, the nation of Syria, tried to do previously in the time of his father. And the message that Isaiah gave to his father is, I will not let the house of David go down. Now Hezekiah is standing in the, as we saw in verse 2, in the same location. He's in the same location with the same dilemma. Who are you going to trust in? And this time, the Assyrian ambassador, the great cupbearer, he shouts out to the whole of the people, if your king... If your king says, trust in Yahweh, you are screwed. You're done for. It's over. Did any of these other nations, gods, did any of them help them when Assyria came through? Why do you think your God's going to be any different? Don't trust in Yahweh. That is the clear message. Trust in us. And... We will give you what you want. Do you not hear echoes of this when you see Jesus being tempted in the wilderness and Satan saying, just bow down and worship me, all of this will be yours. Other things that, that are being promised to the, to the people of Judah here, are they not the things that God has ultimately promised to them? A land of prosperity? A land of grain and wine and bread and vineyards. Each one having his own vine, his own fig tree. Each drinking from his own water, his own cistern. Is this not the kind of thing that we've been reading about in the book of Isaiah? That was prophesied that they would receive. And now they're being offered the very thing that they know God wants them to have. They know God wants them to have this because God's told them this. All they've got to do is bow down. All they've got to do is, rather than putting their trust in Yahweh, put their trust in the Assyrians. And because they're going to get what God promised, they can play the game that really they're still Yahweh's people. Do you see what's going on here? This is exactly the same thing 
that happens with Christians time and time and time and time again. Hey, compromise your faith, but here's the excuse for doing it, and it's all pragmatically good. Do you know how many Christians, young Christians especially, have had their faith completely shipwrecked because they've wanted to be, un- to be yoked unequally to an unbeliever? And they've gone ahead and done it, and they've justified it in the sense of, well, they'll come to church with me. They'll do this and that. There's this and that. There's always excuses that they'll try and justify it. But ultimately, they're not trusting God to provide someone that is not a sinful decision. And this happened in the time of Isaiah. It happened with Ahaz. It happened with Hezekiah. It happens throughout Israel's history. And it happens right into the church era. That people who are people of Yahweh place their trust in something else and they justify it pragmatically while still claiming that they are the people of Yahweh. Happens constantly. And I will say this absolutely categorically. In this time of COVID, preaching here now in January 2021, just for the record, we've seen this just again and again and again. Christians not trusting in Yahweh, fearing death, fearing government, fearing various things, but not fearing God saying, this is what you should be doing, church. This is how it should be. This is, what you should be. this is how it should be ongoing. This is what church is. This is what you do in church. This is what you should be seeing in church. This is why you do church. And all of this has been, has been brushed aside or adapted or adjusted. And it's all been justified through pragmatic reasons. And it's a scary time. And I think that we need to very carefully look at this this section because I think, and I've said this so many times over the years, you know, it's so easy to look at scripture and for us to be the heroes. We look at this and, and who are we in this story? We're the people on the sideline going, no, Hezekiah, don't listen, don't do that. Trust in Yahweh, Hezekiah. Because, you know, we're the good guys, right? We're the heroes. We're the ones who always get it right. Aren't we? We're not. In this story, you know who we are? We're the people on the wall. That's who we are. We're not some, we're not some sort of you know, hypothetical chorus sitting there saying, no, Hezekiah, no, like it's some sort of opera, and there we are shouting from the wings, no, trust in Yahweh, like we know what to do. We're the people sitting on the wall overhearing You trust in Yahweh, you're going to be drinking your own urine and eating your own dung. I'll leave you to paraphrase in your own mind. Or you can have the very things that Yahweh promised you, you've just got to trust in Assyria. And do you know how how appetizing the word trust is? Because trust sounds so much better than worship, doesn't it? You see, when Satan says to Jesus, bow down and worship me and all of this is yours, we say, oh, we're not going to worship Satan. Obviously not. But really, he's asking for trust. And what our faith is, our faith is trust. That we who are Christians, we're Christians because we've trusted in Jesus. We've trusted specifically in his death on the cross being sufficient as a price to be paid for our sin. Our faith is, is trust. And so when our faith is lived out, 
it's lived out successfully or unsuccessfully on the basis of whether we trust or don't trust. Do we trust Yahweh? Do we trust Jesus? Do we trust him? That's it. It's as simple as that. Do we trust him? Because it scares me how many Christians think that we should trust the government before we trust Yahweh. It scares me how many Christians think we should trust the media, we should trust the experts in this and experts in that. You know, I'm not saying that we don't have experts in various fields and listen to it. But, and this is what I've said all along. I said, you know, when, when the governor says, hey, you must drive your car at this speed, you have these rules and regulations, then there's a degree of submission that is required. Now, there's a huge grey area because this is America and there's a constitution and I'm not even going to step in that big pile tonight because I'm not a politician and I'm not a lawyer. But you will all come to your own conclusions about the degree of authority that governors have. But what I'm trying to say is that the, the outside world, the outside world, civil government, can make rules about certain things in society and you may not like them. But when the government says, and this is what you can and can't do in church, then we have a problem. Because we're being asked to submit to them and to put our trust in them. Because if you don't, you'll be drinking your own urine and eating your own dung. If you, if you do meet inside, we'll fine you $15,000 a day. If you do meet inside, we'll shut you down. What do you do at a time like that? When people, even on your own side, are saying, come on, we don't want to be in this situation. We don't want to lose the church. We don't want to lose everything. We don't want to be in this situation. And then, of course, it's spiritualized. We don't want to be a bad witness. What then do you do? You do what you always had to do from the beginning of Scripture. You trust Yahweh. You follow his commands, do what you're supposed to do, and just trust him. That isn't to say that if we had a, a plague that was killing 99% of people who got it, that we would be meeting here you know, and singing away as normal. I'm not suggesting that. But what I'm saying is, is that we need to understand that the normative way that God works in this age is through saints being equipped through the ministry of equippers, teachers, pastors, who then, through that equipping, able you to do the work of ministry, and then you go out and do the work of ministry. And that ministry happens in person. Can you minister on the phone? Yes, to some degree. Can you be equipped through, through a video conference? To some degree. Do you miss out on something when you don't meet in person? Yes, you do. That's why so many people before they were told not to, were gathering with other people for, for Thanksgiving. They weren't, they weren't doing Thanksgiving with a, with a Zoom screen up. It's not the same, it's not worth doing. Either be there or don't be there. People weren't gathering around Thanksgiving table with laptops up, with screens up, to, to say, oh, well, we'll all be together this way. I'm sure some people did, but not many, because people understood, well, either we're going to meet together if, if we're allowed to, if there's, if there's whatever the risk is, or we're not going to meet. Because people recognize it's not the same. And the reality is, is that the church has to operate this way. That we gather together. I cannot emphasize this highly enough. Most of ministry in this church does not happen from the pulpit. Most of ministry happens in this church, talking before and afterwards. Praying for one another. Meeting up outside of church. 
being accountable to one another, praying to one another, coming to other meetings. This is ministry. Ministry happens, and if you're not meeting with people, if you're not gathering together, then ministry doesn't happen. And that's why the warning is in the book of Hebrews to not forsake the meeting together. And so, when God has a normative way of church functioning, for us to say, well, we mustn't do that because we've been told not to or else we're going to be in trouble, how much different is that from someone saying not to trust in Yahweh? Not to trust in Yahweh. Does trusting in Yahweh mean that the cities won't fall? No, 46 of them have fallen already. Does trusting in Yahweh mean that you won't get COVID? Does trusting in Yahweh mean that you won't die, that your fam- someone in your family won't die? Not necessarily. They might. But we passionately believe that church is essential regardless. And so if you have vulnerable people, protect them. Take precautions where necessary. Make your own decisions. But we as church have to be open so that you can be equipped. That's just how it has to be. And so we find ourselves at the end of chapter 36 with this challenge given. And the challenge is this. What good is Yahweh? He's not helped you. Other gods haven't helped people. You've just got to be... You're the same as everybody else. That's the message. You're the same as everybody else and you're going to fall and you're going to be punished the same as everybody else. So you might as well get in line. And when you read this text, you, the pretend hero on the sidelines, what do you say to that? You say, no, we're not the same as everybody else. We trust in Yahweh, we obey him, regardless of the consequences. How many Christians are really living that life today in 2021? The response at the end of the chapter, verse 21, they were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the secretary, Joha, uh, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and they told him the words of the Rab Shaka. And so we find ourselves like any good story. Ending an episode on a cliffhanger. Next week, in Isaiah 37, we will discover the response of Hezekiah to the challenge of Sennacherib. We will see how he responds. But I want us to end on that cliffhanger, so to speak, because there's, there, it ends, the chapter ends with a decision to be made. And so for us, We need to make a decision. And don't think that just because you come to church in the midst of COVID, that you are still the hero. This is a decision that we have to make every day. Do we compromise? Do we not compromise? Are we going to obey scripture when it doesn't suit us, when there are threats, when there are negative consequences, when we look bad, when we're going to get hurt? If Hezekiah makes a decision to trust in Yahweh, and the Assyrians say, right, we're going to take you then. And the city falls. He is responsible for every single person in that city. Do you understand that? When 
When, we had to, when I had to make decisions regarding the opening of church, it weighed so heavily on me because I don't want to be in a situation where we have people in church who are dying, people in church who are, who are getting their, their families sick and their families dying. There, there are, there are, we, are, we are being presented with threats. We're being presented, like they were, with fear. You must be in fear. And because of your fear, you must do what I say. And like Hezekiah, some of us are in positions, whether it's our family, whether it's the church, whether it's a business, where we're making decisions with the consequences affect other people. Can you imagine the feedback Hezekiah was getting? Well, Hezekiah, you can't, you can't trust in Yahweh. Do you know what that means for me and my family? We don't want to be drinking our, our urine and eating our dung. He's got all of that upon his shoulders. And so these, these decisions are difficult. And when, I know for some of you, for some people in this church, the decision to continue meet coming to church when church was open and meet was the easiest decision in the world. Easy peasy. Of course I'm going to come to church. Not even difficult. Sorted. There'll be other decisions that will be hard for you. There'll be other areas of compromise that you'll be tempted to make. This is a message for us all. When the enemy presents us with fear, when the enemy says, oh, if you obey God, this is going to happen, you can still be followers of Yahweh. You just got to do this and this and this and this. And manipulate it all and justify it all. And the reality of it is this. Are we double-minded? Are we double-souled, like James has been telling us in the mornings? Are we people who are going to follow Yahweh wherever it leads? And even if that means great trials, we'll consider it joy because he is sovereign even over that and he will bring it about for our good and his glory. Let's trust in him together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this chapter of scripture. And Lord, we pray that we might be found in such times to be faithful. We pray that we might be found at such occasions to be trusting you. It's so easy to stand on the sidelines of scripture as make-believe heroes, thinking that we would do what is good, we would do what is right. It's never quite so easy in our own lives. May we be graceful to those who struggle in the issues that we do not struggle with. And maybe people be graceful to us in the areas in which we struggle. And may we, as we minister one to another in our weaknesses, may we encourage each other to be faithful in all times and in all circumstances. Amen. Mm-hmm.